Let me have you turn to Romans chapter 7, and we'll read this morning, beginning at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. I want to read this whole passage for you, and as you're turning there, I want to uh, simply remind you that last week we began to look at this passage. It's uh, uh, one of the most arresting passages in the whole of the scriptures, and um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you why it seems to me it is so arresting in just a few minutes, but let me just remind you that last week we, we looked at this passage, basically just the first verse, and, and raised the question, why is Paul always raising questions? Why is he always asking questions as he makes his way through this letter. And, and why did he ask this particular question? This question in verse 7, what shall we say then, that the law is sin? And the answer to both of those questions is that as a Jew, he's anticipating what both Jew and Gentile will anticipate when he says in chapter 6 and verse 14 that we are no longer under law but under grace. They're going to ask the question, well, then what, what's the, where's the law? How does the law fit into this? And so what Paul is doing here is trying to describe for us, trying to, to show us what our relationship is to the law. What is the right understanding of our relationship as Christians to the law? If we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, what is our relationship to the law And where we concluded last week was simply with this principle that the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the law is not to save me. It can't save me. It's powerless to save me. The purpose of the law is to expose me. The purpose of the law is to show me who I am. Help me see who I am. Then in this passage, there's this really stunning, stunning thing that happens. And I want you to look for it as we read these verses together. So read with me at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. We'll read through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Sound familiar at all? Let's pray together. Lord, please be with us as we seek to think your thoughts after you. Please grant us your spirit. You, Lord Jesus, are risen and ascended. And in the wonder and mystery of preaching, you still speak to your people. You feed them, you nourish them, you convict them, you comfort them. And you can do that for us this morning. And we ask you that you would. And we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. And so I've suggested to you that something really remarkable happens in this passage. Something uh, that is uh, very, very surprising if you think about it. And I'm going to come to that in just a second. But I I want to... I want to set this up by asking you to use your imagination. I want you to uh, use your imagination with me for just a minute. And I want you to imagine that you're you're back in the first century and it's about 56 A.D., 58 A.D., something like that, maybe 60 A.D. And you're at the the first Presbyterian church of of Colossae or someplace like that or or Thessalonica, even though I don't think they had Presbyterian churches by name back in those days. And there's a mission conference going on, and as a part of the mission conference, the church is, uh, is going to go down to the shore. They're going to go down to the beach and have a little picnic. And, uh, and so the guest speaker, the one who's been invited to be uh, the speaker, the, the teacher, the preacher, the evangelist for the, for the conference comes along as well, and and after they have whatever they used to have at picnics in, in those days down by the beach, everybody decides they'll go for a bit of a swim. And so a good bunch of folks, several dozen, dozen folks head from the picnic area and they go down to the beach. And, and when they get down to the beach, there's this precocious little seven-year-old boy uh, who, is, who is kind of lagging behind, but he's following the preacher. He's behind the preacher. And when they get down to the beach... The preacher, the evangelist, the the mission conference speaker, strips his shirt off. And the little seven-year-old boy looks at his back and walks up to him alongside him and tugs on his shorts. Precocious, right? Little kid. And says... What happened to your back? 
And the speaker, before he can actually get his shirt all the way off, pulls it back down and he looks at the little boy. And he sits him down in the sand and gathers the other little children around and he begins to tell his story. He tells the story of how he grew up, that he he grew up in an honorable family. He grew up in a prestigious family, in fact. He grew up in Tarsus, and and he tells the kids that growing up in Tarsus was, was growing up in the most influential city in the whole of the Roman Empire. There were three centers of learning in the Roman Empire, Athens, Alexandria, and Tarsus. And when he was a young boy growing up, Tarsus was the most influential, the most significant academic center in the whole of the Roman Empire. And he was educated there in, in Tarsus, and he came from affluence, he came from wealth, and he was really serious about his religion. He took his religion extremely seriously, so seriously that he says of himself, I was actually exceeding, I was, I was excelling well beyond the 16 and 18 and 20 and 22 year olds my age. In fact, by the time I was 30, I was probably peerless. Not only was I educated in Tarsus, this premier intellectual center of the, of the Roman Empire, but I also had a good, solid religious education. My parents, when I was a young boy, sent me to Jerusalem. And I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the premier Jewish rabbi of the day. And so I had the best university education that a person could possibly imagine, and I had the best religious education that a person could possibly have. And I became fanatical. You know the word fan comes from the word fanatical. I became zealous about my religious faith. So zealous, in fact, so zealous, in fact, that in my early 30s, I was bent upon destroying the very people I now adore and love to associate with. And he tells them the story of Stephen and Stephen's trial and execution and stoning and how the people who were there throwing the stones, people periodically ask me about these stones down here. I reassure them that that's not a form of discipline for us in the church. It's just a memorial. But this this Stephen was put to death by people just like this one who's telling this story. And after having witnessed Stephen's death, I then secured letters from the Jewish leaders, the the teachers, the heads in Jerusalem. And I went to Damascus and I was going to arrest people there. I was going to take mothers away from husbands and fathers away from children. And I was going to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they too could be executed. And by now you've guessed the rest of the story. By now you've guessed the mission conference speaker, the lecturer, the teacher, the preacher, the evangelist is the Apostle Paul. And at some point in that conversation, as the Apostle Paul told his story, he recited to these children the things that he recorded for the Corinthians in chapter 11. 
Whoever else dares to boast, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received At the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposed. And the little children, the insightful ones, the thoughtful ones, ask, so what happened to you? What happened to you? How did you go from trying to exterminate, trying to persecute, trying to kill, trying to extinguish this Christian faith? How did you go from that to be, to be one who, who suffers for this faith, faith, whose back is lacerated, lumpy, scarred from being whipped five times and three times beaten with rods? What happened to you? That's the thing that's significant about what Paul does in this chapter in Romans chapter 7. Do you see it? He turns from explaining this gospel, talking about this gospel, trying to articulate the significance, the beauty, the wonder, the glory of this gospel. He turns from speaking theoretically, if you will, to speaking very, very personally. Paul has said his theme in this letter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who would believe. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who would believe. And if you read Paul's Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1, you'll read through the rest of chapter 1 and into 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and you'll get all the way into chapter 7, and only three times, twice in chapter 3 and once in chapter 6, does Paul use a personal pronoun. Does Paul refer to himself? Only three times. But if you read through these verses, these 19 verses that we've just read, by my count, 48 times the Apostle Paul says, I, me, my. I, me, my. 48 times. What is he saying, folks? What is he saying? as he writes this letter to these Romans. He's saying simply this. This gospel 
This gospel that I'm trying to explain to you, that I'm seeking to articulate, this gospel that I'm seeking to explain, this gospel is not a theoretical thing. This gospel is an intensely personal thing. Folks, at points along the way, we have to stop and we have to take a step back from this letter to the Romans. And we've got to recognize the big thing that is here. And that is simply this. Christianity is not a set of ideas. Christianity is not a moral code. Christianity at its core is not a theological superstructure. Some weeks ago, there was a story that was being circulated. It's a true story. It's a story of a basketball player, I think, at Brigham Young University who was being threatened with expulsion from Brigham Young University because he had had sexual, a sexual relationship with his girlfriend, and that violates the moral code at Brigham Young University. Look, if you want, if you want a theological structure... If you want a moral code, if you want a set of ideas in your head, become a Mormon. If that's what you want from Christianity, you're coming for the wrong thing. Because Christianity at its core, at its heart, in its essence, It's not a theological structure. It's not an apologetic. It's not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And nobody knew that better than the Apostle Paul. And when he shifts his emphasis in this chapter from speaking theoretically speaking, theologically speaking, historical, redemptively, to speaking so intensely, personally, it is because he wants to communicate to these, to these Romans, this is not a bunch of ideas in somebody's head. This gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, has redeemed me. It has saved me. Something has happened to me. And the something that has happened to me is that this gospel has become the power of God for my salvation. It's not stuff and nonsense. It's not ideas in your head. It is the infinite personal God who is really there, reaching out, reclaiming, individual sinners. It's striking how many times Paul does this in his letters. People read Paul. They write books about Paul. They, 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 read, they write books about his theology, about his church planting strategy. They write all, And so often, and particularly in our circles, people who take theological understanding rightly, seriously, People who take the Bible rightly, seriously, can overlook that the one who is writing this letter 
is a human being, himself a sinner in need of a Savior. I think I've made this point before. I know I make this point in the inquirer's class. When we come to Ephesians 2 and and, and we're trying to understand why it is that Jesus has to come into the world in the first place. Why it is that Jesus has to live this life of perfect obedience. Why it is that Jesus has to suffer on this cross. So that he, he subsequently might be raised from death to life. Why does all of this have to happen? Why does he do this? And in the class as we're wrestling with these things, I take people to Ephesians 2. And I read these first few verses for them, and we talk about these verses. We talk about Paul describing the condition of the Ephesians, where they were, what they were, what their natural condition is. It's not pleasant. I told you months ago, one of the first books I read as a new Christian was not a Christian book. It was a book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the only thing I remember from that book is that if you remember people's names, they will love you forever. So I try to remember names. It's getting harder. You don't take people to Ephesians 2 if you want to influence them and win them as friends. You don't take them to passages like this. You don't take them to the place where the gospel begins. But this is where the gospel begins. You were dead in trespass and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear the language? It's really dissonant if you think about it. He says on the one hand you were dead, but then he says you were walking around. Dead but alive. You know my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies, is the 1975 version of Dracula. Somebody just said it. I saw her mouth the word Dracula. 1975, Frank Langella is Dracula. One of the most interesting characters in the movie is Mina, the daughter of Abraham von Helsink, who is bitten, who is bitten by the vampire and who suffers because she's already in ill health, suffers and dies, and she is buried. But Mina is not dead. She has become one of the living dead. And Abram van Helsink, this is such powerful imagery, Abram van Helsink, who is the true man of faith, knows the only way his daughter can be delivered from her death is if she dies. And so he goes into the tomb, into the mines underneath the ground with a wooden stake, finds his daughter and drives the stake into her heart so that she might be freed from her bondage. She was alive, but she was dead, foaming at the mouth, red-hot eyes, nasty, horrible breath, 
living but dead, dead but living. That is Paul's description of these Ephesians. But notice what he does in verse 4. I'm sorry, in verse 3. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. See, there he is. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God for salvation. It's not a message first for you. It's not a message first for the Ephesians. It's not a message first for the Romans. It is in the first instance a message for the Apostle Paul. The gospel was the power of God for his salvation does this again in Philippians chapter 3. This is so interesting. So very interesting. Paul is writing to some people who live in this, this city of Philippi. It was a Roman colony in the midst of Macedonian and Greek culture. A Roman colony. And the people of the city prized their citizenship. Their citizenship was supremely valuable to them. Many of them were ex-military people. If you were a Philippian, it meant that you were a Roman citizen and it meant that you had all of the rights of Roman citizenship. It's so striking here in Philippians chapter 3 how it is that Paul describes himself. Verse 3 of chapter 3, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung. You know that's the word, don't you? The translations are varied. The word is dung. I count it dung. All of these things that used to matter to me, I count as dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but having the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of this chapter, in a powerfully poignant way. He reminds these Philippians who so prized their citizenship that they had a higher and better and greater citizenship. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not here. 
Our citizenship is in heaven with our true king, even Jesus, who when he returns will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the same power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. Over and over and over again, Paul is personal as he talks about the gospel. Now, here's my question for us. And it's a question that's worth asking. No matter how long you've been around these things, no matter how many times you've been in church, no matter what you've experienced in the past, here's the question that emerges from this. Do I understand this gospel in this personal way? Do I understand what Paul understood? Have I come to understand that Christianity is not a moral code, not at its core? Yes, there's a morality to it. Christianity is not a theological superstructure, not at its core. Yes, there is a theology in it. Christianity at its core is not a world and life view, not at its core. There is a world and life view, but that's not what it is at its core. What it is at its core is the power of God for the salvation of people like Paul. Do I know, do I know that power? Have I tasted it? Have I experienced it? Has something happened to me like what happened to the Apostle Paul? Has there been a death and a resurrection? Has there been a new birth? Has there been new life imparted to me? Have my eyes been opened, my ears unstopped? Do things that used to seem strange and confusing and odd, do they seem personal and real? That's a question for you to be asking yourself. And again, no matter how long you've been around these things, no matter how many years or even decades you've been in the church and viewed Christianity or Jesus Christ in particular ways, it is always right to take a step back and ask myself the question, do I know this power of God, which is for the salvation, the deliverance, the transformation, the changing, the realigning, the reordering of human life. It's not just in the Apostle Paul that you see it. You see it throughout the Gospels. You see it, I think, especially most clearly in John's Gospel. John chapter 4. I love the story of the woman at the well. Read it, read it this afternoon and ask yourself, what would it have been like to have been this woman, to have gone to that well and to have had this conversation with Jesus Christ? She comes because she's thirsty. She comes to get water from a well. She leaves a changed person. Jesus says to her, call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. No, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the man you are now with is not your husband. She does what anybody would do in that situation. She changes the subject. 
well, you know, you people say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but, you know, we've got it right. We worship here in Samaria. And Jesus won't let her off the hook. He's touched. He's touched her, hasn't he? He's put his finger on the place of deep hurt and wound. And you know what is amazing about this story? Jesus does not reject her. He knows who she is. He knows what she is, just as he knew who and what the Apostle Paul was. He doesn't reject her. He offers her living water. Let me ask you, have you tasted this living water? Go back a chapter. Go back to chapter 3, Nicodemus. The philosopher theologian who comes to Jesus at night says something is up with you. And Jesus again puts his finger on the ache in Nicodemus' soul. Nicodemus. You're not even going to be able to begin to understand the things that I'm talking about unless you are born from above, unless you are born again. Nicodemus, something has to happen to you. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 7. Something happened to him. Has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? Has this New birth, this new life, this, this opened eyes, these unstopped ears, this being cut off from something in the past, being given a hope that so transfixes you, that so captures your imagination, that you're willing to let everything go for the sake of this. Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. Have your eyes been opened? Has your heart been changed? Have you tasted this living water? Have you experienced this new birth? Please wrestle with these questions. Please ask these questions of yourself and know that when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Please know that when he says that, he means it. To the one who comes to him, weary, heavy laden, tired of it, fearful about it, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Would you pray with me? Would you pray with me as we prepare to come to this Lord's table? And I'm, I'm going to leave just a moment of quiet. I don't, I don't know everybody here. I know most everybody here. But I don't know everybody. I'm not in anybody's skin but my own. And I'm just going to leave a moment here for you to wrestle with these things. And if this is something you've never done, if you've never cried out to Jesus, accepted this invitation that he extends, if you have never said to him, open my eyes, change my heart, let me taste these living waters, he is the one who stands before you and invites you to do that.
hear his word. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Call upon him. Let's pray together. Merciful God and Father, merciful Son, and merciful and compassionate Holy Spirit, would you hear the cries of those in this room? And would you, Lord Jesus, fulfill your promise that you will give rest to any who would come to you? Thank you that you are a merciful and faithful Savior. And because you are such, would you continue to work as you worked in Paul's life, as you worked in the lives of the Ephesians, as you worked in the lives of the Romans, as you worked in the life of that woman at that well, as you worked in Nicodemus' life, so to change him that he came, Lord Jesus, with Joseph of Arimathea for your body after taken from the cross. Lord Jesus, don't stop working, but work to open eyes and unstop ears and change hearts. Hear this prayer and all of these prayers. We make them in your name that you might be praised. Amen.